How many of you have seen the movie The Hobbit or read the books? Raise of hands? Okay. All right. Well, the book was published in 1937, so no apologies for spoilers. You've had plenty of time. Okay? Just saying. Sorry. Now, the world of J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, that we call Middle Earth, is a world of elves and dwarves and men. And what we just watched was a conversation and song by the dwarves. In the story, years before this, the dwarves were driven from their homeland under the Lonely Mountain. And they've been wandering the lands in the decades since, for a long time, longing to return to their home. Interestingly, much like the Israelites that we've been covering as we move through Isaiah. They, the dwarves, are deeply grieved to have lost their home, and they never forget this fact. It makes the dwarves in this movie sorrowful and yet unrelenting in their quest to return. In the conversation you heard, the older dwarf say that their current home is nice and it's an okay alternative to their real home because he knows the dangers they face in an attempt to try to reclaim it. But the dwarf king, Thorin, is having none of it. He is determined to get back to his home. I'm sure many Israelites who were exiled from Judah felt the same way. Then, surprisingly, as we watched the clip, as they huddled around the fire during the evening, they break out into song. But not a happy song. It's a sad song filled with memories of the past and the tragedy that has befallen their people. Now, why did I show this clip this morning? Well, I gave you some hints, but for three reasons. First, it is a story about a people who have been driven from their homeland that connects directly with the people of Israel. In fact, many people, knowing that J.R. Tolkien was a believer, thought that this is some type of allegory for the Jewish people, his writing about the dwarfs. Second, we get to witness firsthand how the dwarves think and feel about this tragedy in what is called a lament. And a lament, if you don't know, is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It means to mourn something. And our society doesn't often mourn things well. And that is what our message is about today, about lament. But we'll get back to that here in a bit. The third reason I chose this scene of the dwarves lamenting around the fire with a sad song is because in this movie, this moment in the movie, in the story, this is their first step on their way back to their home. And that's fitting because today we are beginning a new series in the book of Isaiah called The Way Back. The book of Isaiah has a tough message for God's people because of their idolatry and immorality and their sins against God. He allowed them to be punished by the enemies around them. Their land was conquered and they were taken into captivity back in around uh, 600 BC. But in his grace, God also mapped out a way back for them. He reassures them of his ongoing plan to use them in the process of saving the world, but they have to do things differently than they had been doing them. He gives them important things to do in this new forgiven state. And this is the same thing that's true for us, all God's people. God hasn't given up on us. 
He has brought us back from exile. He's given us new life in Jesus Christ. But we have to live differently. And the question is before us, how should we live? Well, first, we need to lament all that has happened to lead us to this point on the way back. Just like the dwarves in the song, being sad around the fire. The first step on our way back just happens to be the first message of our new series, Lament. The first step on the way back. Now, the Bible is filled with lament. There's a book called Lamentations, which was written to talk about the terrible experiences of God's people. There's 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. A number of those psalms are lament psalms. They're sad. They're complaints. They don't end in a happy joy joy. They end with hardship and sorrow and with a question. And in various passages throughout the books of the Bible, there are lament passages like the one we'll be discussing this morning in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 64. On top of that, we are commanded to lament. Did you know that? We're commanded to lament as followers of Jesus, as Christians. But, unfortunately, there's a general ignorance, a lack of knowledge on the part of many Christians about what lament is, and there is a reticence, an unwillingness to practice it. You see, biblical lament is not fun. Because it requires that we at some level meditate on our sins and on the reality of sin in this world. Where we fall short. Where we as a people have broken the commands of God. Some of us don't like to be sad. In fact, we'll do anything to be happy and to be around happy people. Sometimes we say, I don't want to be around that person. They just kill my joy. Right? And so we organize our lives just to be around positive people who make us feel positive. It's all about being positive and being around positive people. Some of us think that way. Some of us approach life that way. Because, you know, sad people can bring us down. And they sometimes do. But we need to be careful. We need to be cautious that in our pursuit of positive thinking and positive people, that we aren't avoiding opportunities to lament just because we don't like to be or feel sad. God is clear that lamenting is good and necessary for his people to practice. Not just individuals, though. Churches, denominations struggle to lament as well. The Protestant evangelical church, they like to sing happy songs and to keep things upbeat. And that's good. There's there's no problem with that. But when's the last time we had a sad service? We sang sad songs as a church. Why don't we? Why don't most churches? Because we don't like to feel sad. We come to church. I want to be energized. I want to be a positive spirit. I want to leave here feeling good about myself, feeling good about the world, feeling good about who God is and what what his plans are for me in, 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 in the day and the week ahead. Some denominations and people groups do this differently, and they lament better than a church like Rooftop might. African-American churches are more familiar with suffering. In fact, they invented gospel and blues music to sing about their sufferings and their sorrows, which were byproducts of the forced slavery that was thrust upon them. They come to a new world. They actually embrace the God of that new world, of their master, which amazes me. But they do so from a sorrowful view, waiting for deliverance. It just happens to be Black History Month. There's a lot we can learn from 
the body of Christ from people who worship and approach God differently, maybe with a more a nearness to lament than we might otherwise have. Because Christians over the centuries, since the time of Christ, have lamented. There's a great verse in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What event did the church, the Big C Church, celebrate this past Wednesday? Anybody know? It was Ash Wednesday on Wednesday. Some of you might not even know that. Some of you might not even know what Ash Wednesday is. Ash Wednesday is an ancient tradition. It's the beginning of a 40-day period before Easter where the church laments over their sin. They lament over sin. They lament over the cause of the dear, beautiful, precious Jesus Christ having to go to the cross and to suffer and die. Through Ash Wednesday, which has been practiced for 2,000 years, or just shy of, you can see the church has always known the importance of lament, of entering into a sadness, a sorrow. Even instituting a day and a season for Christians to be sad and to lament over a sinful world in our own sinful lives. And on a practical level, lamenting can add depth and intimacy to our relationship with God. If God is only to be sought after when things are good, what do we do with God when things are bad? We're going to talk about that more a little later in the message. Not going deeper, not being sad with God, can and will leave us with a more superficial relationship with God. I don't know if you've thought about this, but we only experience the grace of God and his forgiveness to the extent that we understand and believe deep in our hearts that we are loathsome sinners apart from his grace. That we truly have grieved his heart, broken his commands because of our sin. That we are utterly dependent on his grace and forgiveness for life today. The deeper we need God, the more fervent we love God. And lament is part of getting to that depth. So let's read our lament chapter here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64. Read along in your Bibles, on your Bible apps, or on the words on the screen behind me. Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. 
You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted or a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is none, no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, the temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And that's the end. An interesting way to end. A prayer. So how do we lament? What can we learn from this chapter here in Isaiah? Well, let's look first at verses 1 through 3. Let's look at the first section of Isaiah. And specifically what he says in verse 1 that he also says in verse 3. You came down... The mountains quake at your presence. This is a phrase found in verse 1. It's also a phrase found in verse 3. This is in, what, in biblical studies what is called the inclusio, or bracketing. And it's an indicator to us, the reader, of what the author is intending this section to mean. Okay? The author wrote this in a such way that it would be clear to us that we would know what these three verses are supposed to mean. And you know what the theme of these three verses are? God can make the mountains quake. He rhymes it for us. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe I rhymed it. I can't remember. Now, for our brother Skyler, turn to your neighbor this morning and say, God can make the mountains quake. It worked. He said, if I did it, that you guys would do that. That's awesome. (laughs) That is a powerful God. That is a supremely powerful God. And this is where lament in this chapter begins. And it might surprise you where we're beginning in the lament chapter. It begins one where we declare the glory of God. It's the first step. We declare the glory of God. God's glory is visible in so many ways. I could spend all morning, all day, all week, and the next week about all the ways that God's glory is visible for us to see. In this passage, though, in a few verses, the author reveals it through God's awesome power. God can make the mountains quake. Now, let's just not just run past this phrase because it seems a little uh, fun and, and, and it rhymes. Have you ever seen a mountain quake? I'm sure the answer for almost all of us is no. I spent some time this week on YouTube. I typed in mountains quake. Mountains quaking. 
And what did I see? Avalanches, portions of mountains just collapsing, houses being destroyed off the side of a hill, roads, people just being caught in a landslide. And these are just little bitty sections of a mountain that they were able to catch on video. I don't know if you know, Mount St. Helens quaked and it actually blew back in 1980. And there are documentaries that talk about the cataclysmic devastation of one mountain quaking and how it impacted the region up in Washington. This is a powerful God who chooses periodically to do little bitty quaking mountains here and there and could at any moment cause a whole range to explode. When we lament the right way, we declare his glory, his power, his dominance, regardless of the struggles we might find ourselves in. Regardless of the struggles we might find ourselves in, we still declare the glory of God. Now this passage reminded me of the year 2012. If you're a newer rooftopper, 2012 was a lament year here at Rooftop. A lot of sad, sorrowful things happened that year. And the Zilkies had our own struggles that summer. We were expecting the delightful young man who was known as Elijah. Some of you have met him. People say he's a mini-me, so I'll, take that, I'll say that's a compliment to him, I guess. Um, but at the time, we didn't know, boy or girl, right? Because we... Zilkies don't generally find out until they're actually born. So we'll say our baby for the sake of the story. So Julie was pregnant with our baby. And her water broke at the 24-week mark and began her labor, which is not good. Now, babies have survived at 24, even as early as 22, even 21 weeks. Technology is amazing, but it's not good. And you want the baby to stay in the womb as long as possible. And so this just kind of sent the Zilky world up, turned it upside down. So the doctors checked Julie into the hospital for an extended stay because they feared that she could go back into labor at any moment. And if she did, because of the high-risk circumstances, she would need an emergency C-section. And if we're too far away because we're at our home, but we're a half-hour drive from the hospital, we didn't know how that could be bad. So they, they checked her in for the better part of eight weeks. Now, what did that mean for me? Well, that made me a working single dad of five kids at home. While my wife, Julie, was pampered day after day in the hospital. I mean, come on. She's going to be here third service, so I'm just going to keep saying that. So I'll get the rise out of her then that I want to get. Not really. She was actually in bed rest in the antepartum unit for the better part of eight weeks. We would visit her when we could with five kids, right? Until she finally went into labor with Elijah at 32 weeks. So roughly an eight-week period. Now, having your wife, an unborn child, in limbo in the hospital while shuttling five kids to families who had volunteered to watch them for half a day can be a lot. Rooftop rallied around our family and families volunteered. Specifically, the Shragi family is one of those families. And I would get up in the morning, I'd get the kids ready, I'd drop them off. Now, I have five kids, so they volunteered for half days. There might have been the occasional full day, but praise the Lord, half day, I'll take it. So I'd drop them off. I'd go back to work. I'd do my work. At lunchtime, I'd go to that family. I'd pick up the kids. They would have fed them, likely got them ready. I would transport them to their next place. I'd drop them off. I'd go back to work. I would finish up work. At the end of the day, I would go get them. I'd take them home. I'd have to make dinner. I'd have to clean them up. I'd have to get them ready for bed, and I would put them to bed. Those of you who are single parents or who have functioned as single parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, you might not have done it with five kids, but still 
can be a very burdensome process. Those days were sad for obvious reasons, and they were exhausting. And how did I deal with life during those weeks? Well, I would vacillate between declaring the glory of God because I knew I needed to keep, keep my focus, Jeremy. This is the Lord's in charge. God is sovereign. But I would vacillate between that and, I admit, eating my nightly bowl of chips and Rico's nacho cheese sauce. And not just any cheese sauce, I bought the seven-pound jar from Sam's Club. The huge one, just like that, that you see behind me. And every night after everyone is down, I'd get my bowl of chips, I'd scoop. It's not cheese, but it heats and tastes good nonetheless. I'd warm it in the microwave and I would sit there with my chips and my cheese, coping with the sad reality that was my life during those days. You see, there are bad ways to lament. And why? Because declaring the glory of God is not a natural response for humans to have when things are hard, when things are difficult. Lamenting, as you can imagine, can involve some very bad practices and habits. When lamenting, some of us blame God. We hold him responsible. Others will ignore God because I can't blame God, but I still think he's responsible, but I'm just going to ignore him. I'm not going to have anything to do with God because I do think he's ultimately responsible for my hardship, but I can't outright say it because that would be wrong. But in my heart, that's exactly what I feel. And some of us, we try to replace God. Rather than going to God, we go to other things. And I tried to replace God with a bowl of nachos and cheese every night. I gained about five, 15 pounds in those eight weeks as well. We need to recognize our bad lamenting so that we can stop it and replace it with good and God-honoring lament. Declare the glory of God. The second way Isaiah's lament leads us to is this, acknowledges God's anger over our sin. And we see this picking up in verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. These are powerful and descriptive words about our sin and our rejection of God apart from God's grace and intervention in our lives. Verse 7 especially, there is no one who calls upon your name. That's repeated in multiple other places in the Bible. It's not within us to recognize and see the goodness of God apart from his grace and intervention in our lives. We are reprobate and lost in our own sin. And it's not until God in his grace reaches into our hearts and gives us life that we can know him, that we can see him. We shouldn't be shy about confessing our sins. We shouldn't be hesitant to declare our wrongdoing, our rebellion, all the ways that we fall short. And yet that is exactly what we do most of the time. We hide our sin and try to project goodness and got-it-togetherness because we care what other people think, but we shouldn't because it's deceptive It's a lie. We are reprobate, helpless apart from God's intervention. 
And when you and I can proclaim that, when we can declare, I am a sinner, I have done this, I struggle with this, and I'm utterly dependent upon the grace of God, at that moment, we become alive and we begin to truly live. But this is hard. 1 Peter 5.5 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We open ourselves up to receive more of God's grace if we will follow the example of Isaiah and not hide or gloss over our sins, our brokenness, the sinfulness of the world around us, the reality of a fallen world and our presence therein. We've contributed to that fallen world more times than we can count. And as with our first point, there are more bad ways to lament here in this second point. Rather than acknowledge our sin, what are some alternatives? Well, excessive complaining over our struggles. And that's some of us. That's some of you. Truth be told, we're complainers. We made a habit of complaining. Given the opportunity, we complain. We're commanded by God to have nothing to do with arguments and complaints. We blame God and other people when things don't go well for us, when things go poorly. When we make bad choices even, we somehow project that onto other people. We are not willing to look at our own sins and our shortcomings being defensive and self-protective. These are all bad ways to lament, and all of us are guilty of those at some level. How do we lament? Declare the glory of God. We acknowledge our sins and where we've fallen short. And here's the third one. Make your heartfelt plea to God. Verse 9. He says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Don't remember our sins. We have sinned. We just said that. But please don't hold it against us forever. And then he talks about the destruction of the land and Jerusalem and the temple. But verse 12, the final verse is really fascinating with how he closes his chapter. He says this, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Here, Isaiah is pleading with God to stop his judgment against them. He asks kindly but boldly, God, can you stop already? We can't take it anymore. And the chapter ends there. And for some of you, that's exactly where your life is. If you were honest and you cried out, you would cry out to the Lord and you're at the end of chapter 64. But you know what? The Lord loves to hear our cries. In Psalm 34, 18, he gives us this beautiful promise. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. It's not about the destination. It's not about where God wants, where we think we need to get to that God should get us there. It's about who we are with God in the present and in the now. And do we love him? And do we know that we love him? And do we know that he loves us as dearly as he does? Do you cry out to the Lord with heartfelt pleas? 
Do you know God in that way? This God that you've believed and followed for years, do you know God in that way? Do you feel close enough to God, your Father, to do this very thing? God wants to have this type of intimacy with you and with me. He wants you and me to engage him at the deepest level of our existence. And sometimes, sadly, because we're human and we're stubborn, sometimes we only get to that level through pain, suffering, and sadness. And God cares more about intimacy with him than he cares about any other aspect of our lives. And praise to him because he thinks that way. Because this life is a vapor and it's fleeting and it will be gone. And usually, myself included, will only plea to God when we are truly hurting and in trouble. So let's review. How do we lament according to Isaiah 64? We declare the glory of God regardless. I know, not intuitive, but nonetheless, the command. We acknowledge God's anger over our sin. We don't blame. We don't shift it away. We own it. And thirdly, we make our plea to God. And... We trust him. But, but pleading to God is tricky. Because sometimes God hears our pleading and he answers yes. He answers our pray in the prayer in the way we want. And we're healed, we're delivered, we get the thing that we think we need. Our bad situation goes away, life is good again. And we say, praise the Lord, yes, God has delivered Jehovah Jireh, my provider, he has given me what I need. Right? Sometimes that's the response. However, other times the answer is no. We pray for God to end the struggle, to take away the suffering, but he will not relent, at least not yet. What do we do then? How do we handle and trust a God who will not relent from his wrath? We're given a great example. We follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and we ultimately trust him. On the night he was going to be betrayed by Judas, handed over to the guards, beaten and tried by a corrupt court, and ultimately crucified, Jesus made his own plea to his father. We read about this in the Garden of Gethsemane account of his Last Supper and his death in all the Gospels, I believe. Jesus' sorrow and burden was so great. He has dinner. He shares the Last Supper. He goes off and invites some disciples to come pray with him. They fall asleep. He's truly alone. He gets down on his face to pray, and he is so burdened with the weight and the, the hardship that he's about to enter into that he sweats blood. Now, this is a medical condition. When people are so burdened and so stressed out, their blood vessels can pop. And at the same time, they're sweating, and it mixes together, and you sweat blood. And this is what Jesus did. He pleaded more fervently than I would say any of us have ever pleaded with God about anything. And when his own father would not relent from his judgment... Because he asked, God, take this cup from me, Father. Take it from me. Jesus ultimately submitted by saying what? What did Jesus say to the Father? However, not my will, but your will be done. 
And this is the path that we are commanded to follow when God does not respond as we would want when we cry out to him. And this morning, we will be taking communion together. And what better place for us to be than in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus right after the Lord's Supper that our communion this morning represents. Communion is something that followers of Jesus have been practicing for 2,000 years. In our understanding, communion is a symbolic reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are God's family, his children gathered together around a dinner table celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus. By Christ's sacrifice, we have been forgiven. We've been made righteous, fit for heaven. God's righteousness, not ours, has been given to us. And when we eat the bread, we're reminded of his body broken for us. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of his blood shed for us. And as we do this this morning, I want to ask, I want you to ask yourself, how do you lament? Are you humbly walking the path of God's will for your life like Jesus did, even though that path for him was leading to death? Jesus endured great injustice and suffering for the glory of his Father and for our salvation. And we take communion this morning. We need to consider these questions. I want you to think about this. Are you a good lamenter? When you're sad and you're sorrowful and I listen to things, ways we could respond, were you in the good camp or the bad lamenting camp? Are you a good lamenter? Question we should ask some of you. Do you lament at all? Is your life so organized and fixed in the way that you want it that there's no space for for sadness with God? You bottle those up and shut those doors real quickly and move on to positive things. Mm -mm. God's asking you this morning to step into a scary place, to be sad with him about the hardships and the sadness of your life that you just can't avoid and move past, that you need to enter into, but enter into with him. And thirdly, when you lament, How do you do it? How are we going to lament? Let's go ahead and do the communion process. We have a cup here, if you've not seen it. It's got two things on the top. There's a clear and a pink. The clear, you tear that open, it reveals the wafer, which is the body. All right? We'll take this here together. Give you time to open it. If you open both of them, you get to the juice and then it gets a little complicated. So our apologies for any difficulty. But let's take this together, remembering the words of Jesus himself. This is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then tear back the second layer, revealing the juice. Let's remember these next set of words that Jesus has given us. This is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for saying no to Jesus that night in the garden. He is your beloved and perfect son and every part of your existence wanted to say yes to his prayer to take that cup away, but you said no. You said no to him. Unjust as it was, you said no, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you said no because had you said yes, we would not be here. We would be doomed to an eternity apart from you. Thank you for saying no. It literally broke his heart up there on the cross when his heart burst. But nonetheless, you did it. And so when our hearts break here on earth, Lord, as we walk through the hardships of life, help us to remember that you are with us, that you are with the brokenhearted, as you promise in the Psalms. Help us to not be afraid of these hard and dark places, but to know that we go there fully with your presence with us, with your power still with us, tears and all. You're so grateful, and I pray, I pray that we as a church would be a lamenting church, would be a church that has a deeper understanding of your love for us through that. Thank you for Jesus and all that he does in this for us, we pray. Amen. And now let's pray together as a church the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.